0: If you ever were a fan of those old westerns that used to be on TV, they're rather outdated nowadays, aren't they? Rather old hat, but they used to be extremely popular. Uh, One of the familiar things that you'd have seen on those uh, were those posters for bandits and outlaws. Wanted, dead or alive. Well, the message of Paul is that if you are a Christian, you are dead and alive. And At the start of chapter 6, Paul opens up a new train of thought as he continues to unpack the truths and realities of the gospel for us. He's established so far in this letter the true nature of our sinfulness before God. He's made clear how and why it is that our sin makes us guilty before God and why it is that we deserve his judgment and his punishment. There is no one to whom this does not apply except for one man through whom and by whom in complete contrast to our sinfulness the righteousness of God has been revealed, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, by means of his death and resurrection, has taken our sin upon himself. He took our sin and our guilt to the cross. He died the death that we deserve. He did that in our place. And on account of that, God has made known the extent of his mercy and grace and forgiveness through Christ. God If we are a Christian, God sees us as being cleansed and forgiven because of what Christ has done for us at the cross. God the Father accepts the death of his own Son as an acceptable payment and having satisfied his own justice. That satisfaction of God's justice in Christ's death is what the Bible calls propitiation. It's a big, long word, but that's what it means. God is satisfied to accept the death of Christ in your place and mine. The debt has been paid. But the gospel extends far beyond that even in the abundance of God's grace. Not only are our sins placed upon Christ, but his righteousness is accounted by God as belonging to me as a Christian, belonging to you as a Christian, It's a bit like a credit being deposited in a bank account. Money that wasn't mine being credited to my account. And so that now, as far as the bank is concerned, that money is mine. It's in my account with my name on it. And that's how God sees Christ's righteousness in you as a Christian. God declares that because of all of that, We are now in right standing before him because of this transaction that's taken place between Christ and the sinner. Now this doesn't mean that the Christian in practice, in terms of how we live our lives day by day, we do not become perfectly righteousness. We do not instantly start to have perfectly righteous thoughts and only righteous thoughts. It's not that we, we immediately start to do only righteous things and never anything unrighteous. But it does mean that God does see me now as inseparably joined to Christ. And so that in accepting Christ, he accepts me. I'm in Christ Christ's in me, and in God's courtroom, I am declared by God not guilty, forgiven, cleansed on account of his Son. So it is for every Christian believer. I'm saved from the judgment and condemnation I deserve, and so are you if you're a Christian in Christ. This is our being justified before God. It's his declaration over us. This one is mine now. Forgiven, cleansed, accepted, because of my son. That which the first Adam ruined, as we thought about last week, the true and better Adam, Jesus, has completely restored and more. And the important thing to grasp is this. All of my sin problem is because of me. All of your sin problem is because of you. But all of the answer... Is because of God. Every aspect of my being saved is God's doing and I have made no contribution to it whatsoever. The only thing I do is believe and repent by faith and even that is God's saving gift of grace towards me as he opens up the heart of the sinner to the truths of Christ. Such mercy and loving kindness this world has never known outside of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But Paul now moves on to a new theme. Those Christians who've been brought to this place of salvation, how should they now live? And Paul's going to move from the topic of justification to our ongoing sanctification as believers. Now, it's important to remember that justification is something which is entirely of God with no input whatsoever from you and me. We do nothing in our justification. It's something we enter into immediately at the moment of our conversion and it's complete and it's unchanging and it's permanent. Either you are justified before God in Christ Jesus or you are not. And there are no shades or degrees between those two positions. And when we are saved, a great change comes over us. And the results of that change well, they're the topic of the Sermon on the Mount that we'd be looking at on Sunday mornings the change is immediate, but it's not total in terms of how we live our lives. The change is ongoing the Bible describing us as beginning our Christian lives as spiritual babies, but then growing up into maturity. It's important to remember though, isn't it, that even a baby is a complete human being. It's just immature and needs to grow, but it's fully human. At the moment you are saved, you are completely a Christian but there is some growing up to do. Now, that immediate aspect of your being changed, the the Bible actually uses the word sanctification to talk about aspects of that. But then it also talks about this ongoing, constant process of growing up into Christ, into the faith. Increasing in understanding, increasing in love, increasing in zeal, and so on. And whereas your being justified before God is entirely a one-off work of God, your being sanctified as you grow as a Christian is something which is done by the Lord Jesus Christ and you, with you, by means of your union with him. You in him, and he in you. But there can be a lot of confusion over these topics. And in the first instance, Paul wants to tackle a very grave misunderstanding. I mentioned before, verse 20 of chapter 5, where in the second half, Paul says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so Paul asks a question. Should we sin more in order to emphasise God's grace? The thinking kind of goes like this. If where sin abounds, grace abounds, and grace abounds much more, can I not make a bigger statement about God's grace by sinning more and then explaining that God's grace can cover even sins like that? I don't think these things are as frequent as they used to be, but can you picture one of those TV adverts that you used to see all the time for soap powders and liquids that you put into your washing machine? And they produce this nice white shirt or T-shirt, and they cover it with the most stubborn stains and dirty dirt that they can think of. Then they throw it in the washing machine with a dollop of Hey Presto washing powder, and out it comes, looking even whiter than the day it left the factory. What are they saying? Look how dirty... Look how white. And Paul is tackling people who are thinking, well, if I just make myself more dirty, then we can talk about how white God makes us. Now back to the advert, if it had just been your typical little bit grubby and whiffy, well... Where's the big deal with that? So, no, we'll cover it in black currant juice and red wine and blood and curry powder. We'll drag it around a muddy field behind a tractor, leave it all to dry in the sun for 10 days, and then we'll wash it and show them the difference. Well, in Paul's day, there were Christians who were starting to speak about God's grace, kind of like that. Just how gracious is God? Well, we'll show them. We'll just live the dirtiest lives possible and then explain that God's grace is so vast that it can cover even lives like ours. I hope that kind of thinking sounds rather perverse to you at Belvedere this evening, and it is. But there were some who were thinking like that. There were some who were teaching it. Not read the Sermon on the Mount in a while, I guess. Paul anticipated... He anticipates that this is going to be a topic for the readers of his day. And so he asks the question so that he can then immediately give them the answer. He was a very good teacher like that. And of course he says, certainly not. Now the word that Paul uses as recorded in the Greek is actually the strongest word that was available to him in the Greek language to say, no, But it may be that you're thinking to yourself at the, at the moment, but I've never thought that way. That is a bit perverse. It's rather extreme. So what has this to do with me? Well, the answer that Paul gives has everything to do with you. Because even if you've never entertained that particular error, the truths which Paul opens up to tackle it are actually the basis for all of us living as Christians day by day and making spiritual progress and growing up as followers of Christ. So the question may be one that you've never asked, but the answer is still one that you need to hear. The summary of the answer can be found in verses 2 and 8 and 11 how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If we died with Christ, and Paul's not asking the question because he's not sure, he's obviously using a literary term to make people think, well, if this is true, this then must also be true. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but... Alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The life that you live day by day as a Christian is all tied up with understanding what it is that Paul is teaching here. And he's teaching about death and life. Now we've read 14 verses. If you look through those 14 verses, and if you were to add up the number of times that Paul makes a reference to death, dying and burial... And resurrection, life, and living, well, according to my maths, you'll come up with a word count of 27. 27 times in 14 verses, Paul talks about death and life. And it consists of two parts. The first part is point number two this evening the death of the old slave to the old master. So here's a slave who lives under the tyranny of a wicked and oppressive master. There's nothing this slave can do to escape. Their master is far too strong, far too cunning, and far too wicked ever to loosen his grip or his claim. One day, along comes someone else who decides that he would be this slave's master and would have this slave for himself. But how do you affect a change of ownership? Because remember, a slave doesn't merely work for their master. They are their master's property. A master owns a slave. The existing master cannot be reasoned with Or bargained with or paid off to get him to release the slave. He's just too much of a tyrant for that kind of thing. The slave could be stolen perhaps but that would not deal with the existing master's right of ownership. So what to do? Well, the one who would be this slave's new master knows exactly what to do to get the better of the existing master. He kills the slave. Well, there's a right how-do-you-do for the, for the old master. What good to him is a dead Slave. What can that slave do for him now? How can he control or order that slave? He's dead. What power or authority does he have over the slave now? He can stand over that body and shout and rage and bawl till he's blue in the face. That slave's not doing anything because he's dead. His power and rule and reign over that slave is gone. It's been broken because the slave is dead. It's over. It's finished. In Christ, the Christian dies to sin. And in dying, the power of sin and the dominion of sin is broken the power and dominion of their old master is broken they are dead to him sin is no longer their master that relationship is ended how does the, si- the saved sinner Die to the power and dominion of sin. Well, if you've got Romans 6 in front of you, look down. Number th- uh, verse 3, baptised into Christ. This is not talking about water bap- baptism. This is talking about uh, when we are actually converted in Christ. Brought into union with him. It's a way of expressing our being united with Christ into his death. Verse 4, buried with Christ into death. Verse 5, united together. That's all of us who are Christian believers in the likeness of Christ's death. Verse 6, our old man was crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 7, he who has died has been freed from sin, not yet made perfect, but set free from the dominion of sin in which we were previously held captive. Verse eight, we died with Christ. I Get the feeling there's a message here that Paul doesn't want us to miss. Verse 11, likewise, you also, if you're a Christian, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin there's no greater or better way for that, that that connection to be broken you've died to that it has no claim over you anymore you are dead indeed to sin therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts don't present your members that's all of All the bits of your body, all of your faculties, don't present them as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you like it used to. It held you captive. You were bound by it. You couldn't help yourself. Now you can help yourself. In Christ, in your union with with Christ, the power of sin and Satan is broken. You've been set free from it. It no longer has the power over you that it used to have. It can't any longer make the kinds of demands over you like it used to, which you used to be powerless to refuse, but you're not anymore. You can refuse to obey because the old you, which was a slave to sin, has died. And you're in Christ. Now, Paul's answer comes in two parts. It's vital that we keep both of them together and to have both of these things clearly in view all the time. And Paul is doing that in these 14 verses. He's he's placing them side by side. He's going backwards and forwards from one to the other so that we can never lose sight of the one when he's talking about the other. On one side of the coin, the death of the old slave to the old master And then on the other side of the coin, the life of the new slave to the new master. If you're a Christian, this is still you, but it's not the old you. This is still very much you, but it's a new you. If you are a Christian, you have become this dead slave, dead To sin and dead to the power of sin but then something unimaginably wonderful and glorious happened this one who would be your new master the one who killed you in christ is not like the old master he's full of compassion he's full of mercy he's full of loving kindness and something else He has an authority which the old master can only dream of. He's actually jealous for it, but he'll never have it. But the new master does. The one who brought about your death raises you back to life. New life and claims you for himself mine the old master only had a claim on the old you but the old you is now forever dead to him the new master now has his claim over you and you are his and his forever Verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 11, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. You were crucified with him. You were buried with him. You've been raised with him. You now live with him. So present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. As I said this morning as we went through The sermon on that section of the Sermon on the Mount Uh, this isn't you trying to become something, this is you being who God has now made you to be. This new life which you have in Christ well, when you first start out as a Christian, it won't be a life of perfect holiness and obedience. And are there any who've been walking this road for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, who would dare to claim that they live their lives day by day in perfect holiness and righteousness and obedience. But you have been set free from the stifling dominion of sin. You were formerly held captive by your sin, but now you've been set free So that righteousness and obedience, that is now something which you may pursue and attain. And it's in your heart to do it. Because you love your Saviour and you want to be like him and you're following him and he's in you. The old master still lurks. He still wishes you harm and destruction. He still desires to to hinder you, to stumble you, to tempt you, to trick you, to deceive you. And he'll try. If you listen to him, if you give him time, if you become careless, the more his influence could take hold of you but it doesn't have to be that way. It ought not to be that way. That's the message of Paul here. This is the great encouragement that Paul gives us. It doesn't have to be that way anymore because his power is broken. He can demand nothing from you now. His mastery over you has been overthrown because of your union with Christ. You are dead and alive. Crucified with Christ, dead to sin, dead to Satan, raised with Christ, alive in Christ. So present your members as instruments of righteousness. How can I understand that? I was thinking about this during the week and what came to my mind was a little chorus that when I was a little boy we used to sing in Sunday school. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a Father up above. He's looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. There's a father up above. He's looking down in love. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Because there's a father up above who's looking down in love. So be careful. Be full of care for who and what you are now in Christ. Be full of care for Christ. And because you died in Christ, and because you're alive in Christ, you may now be careful. You must be careful. You can be careful, you will be careful, because Christ is in you and the old dominion is broken. The moment you're saved, that whole process begins and you are to give yourself to it every day. Reckon yourself indeed dead to sin, alive in Christ. You are to be constantly bringing that to mind. Not how you feel, but what you know is true. That's how you live. So you wake up tomorrow morning and you push to one side how you feel and you set your mind upon what you know to be true. I Died to sin. I have been raised in Christ. That's what I know. That's how I'm going to live today. I'm dead to sin. I'm set free from sin. I have the victory over sin. I've been made alive for righteousness and for godliness. And with truth firmly in view, you take that to the Lord in prayer, that that will be the thing that governs all of your choices, all of your decisions that you face day by day, pleading the Lord's help and strength to say no to everything that a follower of Christ should say no to and to say yes to everything that a follower of Christ should say yes to. you plead that before the Lord in and through Christ, guess what? God listens to prayers like that. God answers prayers like that. Plead the Lord's help. Plead the Lord's strength on account of what he has done for you in Christ and has promised you. And you daily put off your old sinful behaviour and you put on Christ. And with that single good eye that we were thinking about from the Sermon on the Mount this morning and under and in the one who now is your master, you determine to live as Christ would have you live. And in him and with him, you may You will. That's exactly what God, through His Son, by His Spirit, directed by His Word, instructs and strengthens and equips you to do. You'll make mistakes. There'll be times when you stumble. There'll be times when you give in to temptation. There'll be times when you give in to the pressure from the crowd. But if you confess all of your sins, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive you your sins and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And on you press in Christ. Jesus said that if he has set you free, you will be free indeed. In many ways, Whether or not you think you can live like this is not the point because actually the Bible tells us that none of us can. The issue is this. Can Jesus do this for you? Has Jesus done this for you? Is Jesus doing this in you? That's the question. Settle that question and when you read Romans 6, 1-14 it will fill you with joy and hope and peace. You'll sleep well tonight and in the morning not how I feel. What is the truth of the gospel for me in me dead and alive all that I need I have in Christ